morning, church family. It's good to be together. As a church, we make it our habit to present our needs and requests to God. So at this time, if you would, pray with me as we pray on behalf of our church family. Almighty God, we come before you, our good and gracious King, and we present the needs of our body to you. We come to you confidently because you have told us that our head is Christ and that we are his body. So we can present our needs to you, O God. Father, we come and pray for the men's retreat this coming week. Father, as we know many men are gathering to sit under your word and to pursue community together, we ask that you'd work through this retreat. Father, we pray that you would work in the lives of many of us as we study your word, O God. Father, we pray for the men of our church. God, would you raise up in our church godly men who lead their homes in humble servant leadership under the headship of Christ. Father, would you work in us, we pray. Father, we not only pray for the men in our church, but we pray for the hurting in our church. Right now, we are keenly aware that there are many who are physically in pain and facing disease and illness. We ask for you to be near to them today. Father, we ask that you would ease the pain of those who are in pain. We ask that you would bring healing to their bodies. We pray that you would give them the eyes of faith to look to Christ. Father, we would also pray for those who are under the pain of sin. We see in the text today, we believe that you bring freedom from the bondages of sin. And so I pray, we pray right now that you would work in anyone's life who is bound in addiction or sin, who is wrestling with besetting sin and, and feels there is no freedom. Would you bring freedom in Jesus Christ, I pray. Father, we would pray not only for our church, but other churches here in South Florida. I'm reminded of First Coast Church with Pastor Larry Trotter. Father, as, as Pastor Larry this morning prays, uh, preaches from Exodus 28 and 29, would you bless his words and guide him? Father, let that church be faithful to the gospel today. Let many churches across our land be faithful to the gospel and raise up disciples here in South Florida, we pray. And now, oh God, we pray that you would work in our midst. We pray that as we turn to your word, that we would listen and hear. Father, we know that you use your word to create life in your people. And so we come expectant. We come knowing that your word is living and active. We come believing that you are ready and willing to work in our lives because you said you would. And you do that through your word. So I pray that you would work in me, and I pray that you'd work through me. I pray that you'd work in our church to grow us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Franklin Roosevelt became the president of the United States during the difficult years of the Great Depression. Less than two weeks after his inauguration, he began the first of many famous fireside chats where he began a new practice of speaking directly with American people. This was a notable change in the status quo of his predecessor. 
He used his opening season of leadership as president to bring bold and significant changes to the country. He made several daring mo moves in, in monetary policy and legislature that helped to bring America out of the Great Depression. His beginning as a president was especially notable. And so it was, in fact, from the beginning of his presidency that pundits and observers began to ref begin referring to the first 100 days of a president's term. After Roosevelt, the idea stuck, and people began talking about what the first 100 days of a president's term would include. They began to watch carefully and to evaluate. They began to see what kind of tone would be set for the new leader and what his office would be like. What would he do? What would he say in his coming days? Well, in a similar way, we return today to the opening season of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And Luke is writing this account to Theophilus so that Theophilus can have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And as Theophilus reads this, I can't help but wonder if he is also evaluating, he is also carefully watching how Jesus of Nazareth will begin his ministry. He's watching to see what will he say and what will he do. Well, last week we saw that out of the gate, Jesus was tempted and he was faithful in temptation. He, as it was, proved his road readiness as he was greater than sin and temptation. But then in today's passage, Luke introduces Theophilus and us to the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. In many ways, today's account is a prototypical example of Jesus's teaching ministry. What will it look like? How will people respond to this Messiah? And we see in our passage and episode, which unfolds really in two movements. We see Jesus reading the word of God and people responding, and then teaching the word of God and people responding. So we'll just walk through the story today and see it. And as we do, we'll see, number one, the wonder of deliverance. Number two, the hardening of unbelief. Those are my two points for this morning. The wonder of de deliverance, and number two, the hardening of unbelief. And here's what I want to argue to you, because I think Luke was trying to show something to Theophilus. Here's his argument throughout the course of the passage. Mere amazement leads to unbelief. Let me say that again. Mere amazement leads to unbelief. That is, mere amazement at Christ's deliverance. This wonderful deliverance that Jesus Christ brings, merely amazement, mere amazement at this is, leads to a, a type of self-deceived unbelief. So, Theophilus, do you want true belief? Don't settle for mere amazement. Theophilus, do, are you self-deceived as you listen to this teacher? Listen and find out. So today we're studying Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. David just read the passage for us. If you're new here, I'm simply going to just take the next few minutes 
to walk through this passage. And my goal is to explain what the text says and then explain what it means for us today. You'll be helped by bringing your own Bible and opening up with us so that you can follow along in your copy of God's Word to make sure what I'm saying is actually there in the text and to learn it for yourself. In fact, you might even want to jot some notes down as I'm talking, ideas that stand out to you or places of conviction that you might want to return to with a friend later today. Well, the story here today in Luke 4.14 begins with Jesus returning from the wilderness where he was tempted. And he goes to this area, Luke says, called Galilee. You see this in verses 14 and 15. This would have been on the northwest side of the area of Israel, the same region where Jesus grew up. And we see here that word immediately spreads about Jesus as he begins teaching in the synagogues. So as Jesus is teaching, uh, immediately he becomes the trending topic of the day. A report goes out about him, Luke says. And what he's saying is gaining a hearing, so much so that verse 15, he is being glorified by all. It's not merely his miracles, which will catch people's sight and bring him praise. No, his teaching, his words are causing people to praise him for what he's saying. Well, what did he say? What was it that was so amazing that would call people to praise him and glorify him as his teaching in these synagogues? Well, Luke stops and shows us. That's what the remainder of the passage is about. We find here one account of Christ's teaching, and it focuses on one area of Galilee in particular. It focuses on Nazareth. Now, Nazareth isn't new for us, is it? This is where the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1. This is also where Mary and Joseph had returned in Luke 2 after visiting Jerusalem. And so, importantly, Luke says in verse 16, this is where Christ had been brought up. Okay, so pause and just reflect on that for just a moment. This was likely a small town at the time. Perhaps uh, imagine a mere 400 people in this town. And these are the people and families who already knew Jesus for the past 30 years. They had watched him go from being a child to a teenager to a young man to now being a grown adult. They knew his whole family, his brothers, his sisters, his father, his mother. He, he, they knew them by name. He, he wasn't a mysterious teacher to these people. No, he was the child who just who grew up down the street from them. And so imagine, perhaps, if you're not originally from South Florida, think about returning to your hometown, where you grew up, where everyone knows your name and calls you by your childhood nickname. Think about going back to the place where everything is familiar and everyone knows your backstory. Well, this is what Jesus is doing. He's going back to his hometown. And just as he had done many times, Luke says, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue in Nazareth. Now, a, a synagogue is merely an assembly place where the Jewish, a Jewish congregation would meet on the Sabbath. Likely, this was 
the Sabbath day that we're reading about here, and the Jewish town was, was gathering together to hear from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, it would have been common for part of the service in a Jewish synagogue to be led by an adult Jewish male who would read and then teach from the Scriptures. This had happened countless of times before. The same group getting together, listening to the Hebrew Scriptures being taught and read. But this time, Jesus comes in, and he doesn't sit in his normal pew. He instead, verse 16, stood up to read. This would have been a signal. By standing up, Jesus was indicating that he wanted to be the reader in the assembly that day. And so, we read that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And here we see the wonder of deliverance, because Luke tells us what he read. No, notice in verse 17, interestingly, Jesus unrolls the scroll and then found the place where he would read. It seems that Luke might be suggesting to us that he's not merely following the fixed reading schedule for the synagogue that day. No, he would choose his own passage that he was going to read to this gathering. Well, what would Jesus read? Here, in this moment, back in his hometown, among those who knew this local carpenter, imagine how it must feel for them to hear these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What an incredible moment. As one observer pointed out, this reads like a man standing to give an announcement. It reads a bit like a proclamation of victory. This isn't the reading of a hometown son who's meekly reading scripture again. No, this sounds like a new king coming and proclaiming the release of captives. Now, I want you to see how this went down in the synagogue that day. But before we do, there's just too much gold in these few verses to skip over. Just pause with me for just a minute or two and notice what he says. Because this is a, this is a type of spiritual emancipation proclamation. He's, he's coming in and he is declaring victory and freedom, a, a new era in the life of God's people. What is he saying? He's quoting from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It speaks of an anointed prophet proclaiming release and, sorry, proclaiming news and bringing release. It's kind of how you can think about what he works through here. An anointed prophet proclaiming news and bringing release. And so Jesus is the anointed prophet. This, this actually points back to what we just studied, church, a couple weeks ago. Do you remember this? We looked a couple weeks ago at his baptism and how the Spirit of God had miraculously come down upon him and had anointed him for ministry. Well, here's his ministry. 
and he is proclaiming news. You see that? He is proclaiming good news to the poor. Now, certainly the gospel of Luke shows that Christ has a heart for the physically poor. This would be those who don't have money or possessions. It talks about this theme a lot in Luke. We'll see that in the weeks to come. You should care for the poor. But several indicators suggest that this this verse is pointing to those who, as Jesus teaches elsewhere, are poor in spirit. This is good news coming for those who come to God with empty hands. Those of us whose spiritual bank account is, is bankrupt before God. Those of us who come not to help ourselves, but God coming to help those who are destitute before him, those who can't help themselves. They will hear good news. And so Jesus is also proclaiming a release. Notice there in the text, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The imagery here is of captive exiles who are living off in a foreign land, and they now have a new king that comes in, and he is letting them go. He's unlocking the prison cell and letting them come out and go free. And he says he is here to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. So those that cannot see for themselves, those that cannot find their own way, Jesus is going to give them sight. He says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The picture of this word being oppressed is someone who is under the weight of severe hardship. The word picture is of someone who is, who is overburdened by a burden that they are carrying. Jesus' ministry is going to come along and, and cut that burden free. I couldn't help but think of a Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. You know the story of this, this believer who's traveling through life, weighed down by his burdens, that had been strapped to his back. It's, a, it's this cumbersome weight on his back that he, he carries around. And he, he's had it for, for longer than he can remember. And then he eventually kneels at the cross and Bunyan writes, his burden loosed off his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in and I saw it no more. This is what Jesus will do. He's going to free those who are carrying a burden that they cannot bear. Friends, all of these word pictures are being stacked up on one another to give us this, this vivid picture of the, the power of release that Jesus Christ will bring. But you must understand the type of liberty that is being talked about here in the context of Luke. This is not talking merely about some experiential sense of freedom in your life. This is not talking about freedom from socioeconomic bonds or from political oppression. This is not talking about helping you live your best life right now. As if you would, could have less guilt and bad feelings and be happier about it. No, friends, this is something far more eternal far more consequential in your life. This is a description of a cosmic battle being won by the Son of God. The slavery, the, the captivity, the blindness 
the burden that we have by being under sin, Christ is releasing us from it. That is, the chains to sin against an infinitely holy God. You see, sin is a burden. Sin is blinding. And our fallen rebellion puts us under an evil oppressor. Corinthians says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. And so, Christian, you are free from sin. You are free from sin. You are free from the oppressor that you once lived under. Sin will no longer have dominion over you, Scripture says. Paul explains it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Has the wonder of this been lost on you? Has the, the power of this in your fight against sin been lost on you? You are no longer under the power of sin. In Christ, you are free. You must understand this and fight sin even this week with this knowledge. And to any non-Christian friends here, we Christians have the audacity to say that you are under the weight of sin. We Christians claim, because of what Scripture says, that anyone who is not following Christ by faith, putting their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ, is under the bondage of eternal sin. So this is why we're constantly talking about Jesus Christ. Because we believe that one day it will be too late to be released from these bonds. One day... When what we believe now by faith, we will see by sight, our decision will be made. Did you choose to follow King Jesus and place your faith in him? Or did you choose to act like you are free all along? I invite you, look to the life and work of Jesus Christ today. If this is new for you today, be sure to talk to someone today about how to have freedom, true freedom, eternal freedom in Jesus Christ. Well, notice where Jesus ends this reading in verse 19. He says that he is here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I, I think this is actually a stunning reference to the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. You see, back in the, the nation of Israel, God had designed a means of preservation for those who were in poverty. Those who were in need could lease out their land, and every 50 years, the people would have their land restored to them. This was a gracious provision by God for dealing with need and debt. But this year, in the life of Israel, wasn't merely about dealing with debt. In fact, that picture had never been only about that. It had been foreshadowing, pointing to this day, to the day of the Lord when Jesus Christ would proclaim an ultimate release. He would be our ultimate jubilee. He would bring a permanent freedom and preservation. That's what's being announced here. Do you get what Jesus is saying? He is standing in that synagogue that day, and he is saying to anyone who will listen, today is the day. 
the, the Messiah has come. The ultimate deliverer has arrived. A new era has begun. Now, thanks to Luke's writing and the way that he just tells this story, you can almost feel just the significance of this moment as you just read the story. Look at verse 20. Luke writes, He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and then sat down. A, a, a Jewish rabbi would typically stand up to read and then sit down to teach. Jesus had chosen the text to read in the service, and now he sat down as the rabbi to teach on the text. And Luke says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. That's, that's, way of, that's Luke's way of saying you could have he heard a pin drop as Jesus goes to speak. The people were leaning over, trying to see past the person in front of them, wondering, what would this man do next? What's about to happen? This man who they had watched grow up it came back and he read this prophecy. What is he about to say now? Look at verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hold up. Now we're at a whole different level. Now his intention is explicit. He's not just quoting scripture anymore. He's fulfilling scripture. I wonder if you remember the beginning of our study back in Luke chapter 1. If you remember, I emphasized that Luke was writing to Theophilus to give an account of the things that had been accomplished or fulfilled among them. Luke had used the same word, fulfilled. And here, Jesus is announcing that he is fulfilling scripture. He's bringing it to accomplishment. What Isaiah had prophesied is now happening. Today, in their midst, there in that synagogue, the king of creation is finally announcing the salvation to the problem of the universe. And Jesus says to these hearers, it's happening, literally the text says, in your ears. The picture is that as the sound waves are, are coming out of his mouth and traveling and, and hitting their eardrums, in that moment, Scripture is being fulfilled by what Jesus is saying. The good news of a new era is here. Friends, what a wonder of deliverance this is. Praise God for this. God is at work among mankind. Do you believe that today? Notice now two simultaneous responses that come when this divine rabbi finishes. First, verse 22, they marveled at his gracious words. They, they were like the crowds in the surrounding country that we had just read about who were all praising him. Of course he's trending. Who, who, who wouldn't want to listen to these gracious words? Who doesn't want to hear this kind of message? And so... They marveled. But then in verse 22, we see where the passage just turns on a dime. The words are chilling. They say, is this not Joseph's son? 
In other words, don't we know you? Aren't you the kid that, that grew up down the street from us? Mark's account fill this, fills this out more. They say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? See, this town was amazed at Jesus' words, and that's where it stopped. They saw him with the eyes of man, not with the eyes of faith. I wonder how you'll respond to Jesus Christ this morning. Here's Luke's argument to Theophilus. Be careful, Theophilus. Mere amazement leads to unbelief. And so our second point today, the hardening of unbelief. Jesus, the omniscient one in the room, hears their question and reads their hearts. Verse 23, he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. What you have what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, reading his hearts, he, he quotes this proverb, physician, heal, thy, heal thyself. This was a, a common expression, essentially meaning, we want to see proof. Or as one commentator says, you profess, so now produce. It seems these people wanted a miracle. They wanted a sign. What, what you've, we've heard you've done over in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They wanted their own slice of evidence. And Jesus saw this as unbelief. By the way, you might wonder what he did in Capernaum. The re remainder of the chapter outlines his miracles in Capernaum. We'll go there next. Jesus is saying that when the Nazarenes hear of this, they'll want to see it for themselves. The, the, they were amazed by his words, but that wasn't enough for them. This isn't all he says. Staring then at their incredulity, how does he respond? Look at the line that gets them so upset. He says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So Jesus here is calling himself a prophet. He's putting himself on par with Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah, and is putting them in the place of the rebellious people who reject the prophet. And there's this powerful play on words here, by the way, which you have to look closely to see. It's worth catching. When he says, no prophet is acceptable, that word acceptable in verse 24 is the same as the word favor back in 19, when he said he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's the same word. So it seems it's playing off his announcement. You can catch the drift of what it means. He's saying, the time is acceptable to God, but the prophet is not acceptable to his people. What a frightening point. God has announced his message. God is ready to work. And his people aren't ready for the messenger. Oh, friends, I hope today you're ready for the messenger. Jesus drops two stories on them. He gives them two living illustrations that they can relate to. And they don't miss it. He starts with these stories with but in truth. This is a phrase Luke normally gives to signal that something serious is coming. Look at verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. So, so Jesus is putting himself on par with Elijah and Elisha, and he's claiming a parallel situation to these prophets. First, Elijah is the prophet of God in, in 1 Kings 17 that is sent to a woman in the land of Sidon. Elijah works miracles in her life, giving testimony to God. Then Elisha is this prophet of God who miraculously cleanses a leper in 2 Kings 5. But this wasn't an ordinary leper. No, this was Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Elisha had cured him of leprosy. So, so what is Jesus doing here? What's his point? What's he getting at with, with illustrating through these two stories? Look at the pattern. You can probably just spot it for yourself. If you look at verses 25 and through 27, you see it goes, Many widows in Israel, but the prophet sent to none of them, but only Zarephath. Many lepers in Israel, but none of them was cleansed, but only the Syrian. Here's the idea. The prophets of old had many hometown opportunities, but none of them received the blessings of their ministries. Instead, they went to outsiders. Jesus is saying the hometown might reject the prophet, but God will still work through those who respond to his word. The de deliverance which Jesus brings will not be slowed by those who reject him. Nazareth, you can doubt all you want. Nazareth, Nazareth you can demand your signs. Nazareth, you can choose to call him the son of Joseph instead of the son of God. And you'll just be like one of those of the previous generation who missed out. These families in his hometown didn't miss the message, and they hated him for it. Look at verse 28. When he heard these things, all of the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built so that they could throw him off down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It's interesting, by the way, that Luke doesn't really tell us how Jesus just passed through their midst. It, it appears to be some miraculous escape. I think he doesn't expand on this because it's not the point. The point is that Jesus' own town rose up against him to kill him. The point is that the word of God had exposed their hearts Jesus' teaching had shown them the unbelief that was truly there. And they were angered. They were filled with wrath. How dare he say this to us? How dare he suggest that these messianic promises of Israel would pass over us? Who does this kid think he is? How dare he suggest that these promises would go to others, to outsiders? How dare he come in here and try to question our hearts? And so they tried to kill him. And in doing so, they rejected the Son of God. They were self-deceived, weren't they? They were outraged by the accusation that they would be passed by. And, and in their outrage, they were passed by. 
This is the hardening of unbelief. What an incredible story for Luke to open up with in, his letter, in this account for Theophilus. Hey, Theophilus, you, you want to have certainty concerning Christ? You want to have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught? Start by looking at this example of unbelief. Make sure it isn't you. Theophilus, these people marveled initially, but look where that got them. Mere amazement leads to unbelief. Anyone can sit in a synagogue and, and marvel at gracious words. Anyone can sit in a church on Sunday morning and marvel at gracious words. Oh, but it takes the gift of faith to believe that this man is the Son of God and not just the Son of Joseph. Well, church family, where does this leave us? It's first pointing. Where should we be when we see a story like this unfold? And just point to three places of application as I close. First, so trembling, gathering, praising. That's where I'm going to go. First, trembling. Seeing this bold reflection of Nazareth should lead us to tremble before God. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians says. As the author of Hebrews says, take care, brothers, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We'd like to apply that to others. What about ourselves? Take care. Friends, I fear that our churches today are often filled with well-meaning people who have the same heart of those faithful attendees in that synagogue. Sabbath after Sabbath, they came in and they heard the word of God read to them. And yet they still put Jesus Christ out of their lives. Maybe even in our church today. We should tremble that we might marvel at the gracious words of Christ. Welcome the proclamation of liberty. Welcome the preaching of good news. And yet then have a heart that is self-deceived by unbelief. Does your life bear fruit of someone who is following after Jesus Christ? In what way does your life not bear fruit of someone that's following after Jesus Christ? In what way do you have places in your life where you are not following him, where you are instead pushing him out, as it were, of a corner of your life. We should read this account and tremble. Be on guard against unbelief. Be on guard that you are not one who merely marvels at Jesus and yet that doesn't follow him with your whole life. How do we do this? Number two, gathering. I just quoted from Hebrews, and if you know Hebrews, you know, so much of the book of Hebrews is filled with these warnings against unbelief, like the passage we saw today. Well, one of the key ways that the author of Hebrews says that we fight this unbelief is by our mutual commitment to one another in a local church. Hebrews 10, 25 and 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, Christians who guard against unbelief join with other Christians. Our practical application of this, according to Hebrews 10, is that we will prioritize even the gathering in this assembly on Sunday morning. We will not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. But instead, we will encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. Do you prioritize this gathering? Or, if not here, your gathering in your local church? For your faith, you need to come. You need to come on Sunday mornings and be encouraged by the assembling together with fellow believers. Entering into this assembly should not be an afterthought for us. We need to come and and hear the word of God read and sing the word of God to one another and pray the word of God over one another and hear the word of God preached. We need a, a church body that holds one another accountable to Christ. This is one of the primary ways that God preserves his people against unbelief. So we shouldn't take it for granted. Too many people have fallen away from the faith. Too many people have walked away from Christ. Too many people have followed the path of the Nazarenes. Trembling, gathering, application number three, praising. Friends, this passage should fill us with praise. Just, Just revel in this for a second. If, if you right now have been cleansed from your sin, then you are the unlikely Naaman who was off in Syria who was cleansed from his leprosy. If you right now have spiritual life, if you are alive in Christ, then you are that widow, that unlikely widow from Seraphath, far off in the land of Sidon, that had the word of God come to her. Because we are the ones who deserve nothing of God's covenant promises. We are the ones who are outsiders in the story. We are the ones whom the prophet, the great prophet, has come and cleansed. Our king has come into our land, and he has proclaimed liberty to us. Our king has come and given sight to our blindness. He has come and he has has cut the burden from our backs. We were spiritually bankrupt before God. And he has come and proclaimed good news to us. Friend, don't you see it? Our hearts are so prone to be the Nazarenes. That's who we are on our own. We are the ones who, who push Jesus out and say, don't you dare say that to me. Don't you dare read my heart that way. And if right now you humbly admit your sin and see Christ as immensely, supremely beautiful, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is not of your own doing. Christ's kindness has opened your eyes. The recovery of sight to your blind eyes. And this is his good favor to us. So we praise him. Praise our Deliverer. Praise King Jesus today. We are the ones who can sing, What gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is our joy, our righteousness and freedom, our steadfast love, our deep and boundless peace. To this we hold, our sin has been defeated. 
Jesus now and evermore is our plea. Oh, the chains are released. We can sing, we are free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise the name of Jesus Christ. He is our deliverer. He is our true and living and abiding hope. We gather as this assembly to declare that we believe that we are poor and needing him. We praise you, King Jesus. You've been so kind to us. You've brought us in when we have been so undeserving. We extol your name. We magnify you, O God. Would you give us the eyes of faith to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We pray this in his name. Amen.